welcome everyone out to episode 99 of Utah in the Weeds. My name is Tim Pickett, and I'm so excited. We're coming up on episode 100 next week. I'm going to do it. Today is the second half of the interview and discussion that I had with Cliff Clifton Uckerman. He is a licensed clinical therapist, and if you are not subscribed, go ahead and subscribe so you can go back and find last week's episode, get started from the beginning, understand Cliff's story, uh, where he comes from, where he's headed, what he what he has lived through with uh, really surrounding drug use and his family and his personal experiences, and how he is developing that into a treatment for the shame molecule, as he calls it. And today we do, we get into that a little bit and prime that discussion for future episodes and future discussions. Very great conversation with Cliff today. From a housekeeping perspective, join me at Utah Can, the third annual business conference and consumer expo utahcan.com. That's U-T-A-H-C-A-N-N.com. It is May 13th and 14th, next Friday and Saturday at the Utah State Fair Park. You can get your tickets today. Uh, You can search our social media at utahmarijuana.org. We'll have info about those tickets. And I'm really excited to go down there. There's a lot of panels. We have our own staff. Uh, Lissa Reed will be on the panel. We have, I believe, Amber Statutus is speaking about women in cannabis. And uh, Cliff, of course, will be there. And I will be there. We will be, uh, we'll try to record down there as well, like we did on 420. If you haven't gotten, uh, listened to that episode, that's fun. That was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just exciting things as we're getting out into the open again and the world is opening back up. So enjoy this episode and uh, looking forward to coming to you next week with episode 100. Stay tuned. Enjoy. When did you start practicing? Right after you got your master's in, yeah. in licensing? 2010, 2011. I worked at Odyssey House. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, why, why wouldn't you? You're, you grew up here. Right. Yeah. My dad was here, in Odyssey House for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Just for a little bit before yeah. he got kicked out. <laughs> yeah. So, you, I mean, you're really just like literally giving back to the community that, mm-hmm. that you were raised in. Mm-hmm. And then from there, uh, now I just love, you know, it's not like I love being in charge or love to lead. It's just that that sense that tends to be, those tend to be the positions that I gravitate towards or that call sure. for me. Yeah. So from there, I just had been in like leadership, administrative management positions Still doing direct service, but helping with organizational growth, with uh, helping organizational culture change, with you know improving and enhancing uh, service delivery systems, with increasing the volume um, and aiding in the retention of clients and building communities with any organization that I've ever been at or helped to either start or improve. It seems to be that you know, my energy and passion and the teams that I get to work with and build and create 
bring things to life a little bit, you know? Yeah. Okay. So question now is, and partly because this is a, a cannabis podcast, mm-hmm. is you left cannabis behind because you, because it was bad. I hated right? it. And I'm, yeah. And it, it was part of the story yeah. of the, all the negative things that were happening to you as a child. Well, plus I, had, I ended up with cannabis-induced psychosis when I was about 18. So I remember calling the cops on myself and hearing lots of voices thinking people were trying to kill me and hearing a lot of different things inside of my brain. <laughs> and the oh. cops came one night and they said, oh, we're dealing with a 5150. <laughs> <laughs> you just... And I turned my back on them and went into my home and <laughs> really, and they just left. Did they? <laughs> They're like, uh, he'll be fine. Yeah. But I he'll did survive. smoke. I smoked a lot of weed from 12 to 18 until I had that psychotic kind of you know, episode. And I got scared. And then I really hated it because I kind of associated it with all of the turmoil and destruction that was happening in my world and my life. And, with my family, but were you anti, so you were anti cannabis with the people you were around? Yeah. Well, or I just too? avoided it altogether, Yeah, you know, and still a lot of my friends and family still use, I mean, my brother before he died, he had diabetes and glaucoma because of the diabetes and he went blind for a good year. And when he really took up using marijuana, um, his vision came back, not all the way, but partially. Mm-hmm. And so for, for up until he died, he could still drive and get himself around and go shopping and watch TV. But before that, he could not see anything at all. He was completely blind. Wow. When did it come back to you? Or, or so you're 18, mm-hmm. you have this kind of event, mm-hmm. you associate cannabis with a lot of these negative, negative. things that have, that have happened. You hate it. Right. And... You become a, did you get all the way through your master's program? Without. Without cannabis? cannabis. You're hating it clearer through then? No, I think, I think, you know, in my mid twenties and early thirties, I started to kind of come back to it a little bit more. Um, I was really afraid of it because I didn't want it. I didn't want the paranoia. I didn't want the voices. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the psychos. No. So, well, that that makes it both negative, right? So not only is the stigma and the association negative, but the experience was negative right. too. So it really, I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if you'd never come back to it. Right. Yeah. There was, I think for me, um, it's more of a social justice matter because still, if all my friends and all my family are going to use it, then there's got to be benefit and value of it to it and um i really am not happy with the existing and the historical criminalization that happens i'm not happy with people that get arrested and charged i think here's where i think that now that i'm thinking about it the turning point was when i was running the cats program the addiction treatment program in the oxbow county jail one of the earlier jobs kind of that i was that i had out of my master's program and I was working with, you know, two pods, 67 guys on one side, 56 guys on the other side, running addiction treatment services in each of those little communities, community-based kind of um, community model, community therapeutic model. And so many of them were being violated 
They would leave the jail. They completed their addiction treatment program. They got their certificate. Two weeks later, they were right back. And my question was, what the hell? Why are you back? Because I got violated. Violated for what? A dirty drug test. No, a dirty drug test. For I what? Peed, I peed dirty. TH for, for bud, for smoking bud. And it was violation after. And so I would say when I worked there, 80% of the guys in there were actually only back in there because of a violation. So they would come in. They knew the whole program. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were stellar uh, residents. Residents, yep. They were stellar residents. They mm-hmm. knew all the rules. Right. They, they did their thing. They right. got out. Right. And then, <laughs> boom. The other problem there is a lot of them would come in with opiate addictions, heroin addictions. And this is the height of the opioid epidemic, 2015, 2016. Yep. So they would come in, their tolerance would go down because now they're locked up and they're not using anymore. And a lot of times, if they can get out and just use marijuana, that helps, you know, uh, delay the urges, cravings, and impulses. That can extend their sobriety. That can help them uh, manage their urges, cravings to use. And so, but what happens is because they can't use marijuana, then they're right back to heroin. And because their tolerance is low, they die and overdose. And so, you know, although a lot of them were coming back for violations, a lot that were on heroin coming in ended up dying when they got out because they you know, went back to using and didn't have any buffer, didn't have any cushion, didn't have anything else right. as a medicine or a medication that they could use to extend their lives and, you know, delay return to use of more high-risk drugs. Do you think there's something to being able to self-dose cannabis compared to other medications? You talk about people getting out of a institutional like treatment setting Mm -hmm. and not really having access to self-dose medications. They're, they're on a few medications probably, um, that are prescribed. Right. And if they run out, you know, they've got to get a visit, they got to go in, they've got to like go through some hoops to get that back. Right. And, and on the other hand, you also have this, you can't dose an antidepressant or a or another drug, like you just get what you get. Right. You can't take more on a bad day, less on a good day. Right. Less if you got to go to work. I think there's something to having a sense of control. Right. Well, that, so there's another angle to this too, which is, you know, a lo- there's a, an overrepresentation of minorities in the criminal justice system, people of color, right? So if, People from communities of color, if they have better and greater access to, to marijuana, but less and more restrictive access to traditional mainstream psychiatry and other, you yeah. know, things like that, then what's going to happen is they're going to get out. They don't have the access. A lot of times they get disqualified. Like I get really angry when people of color go into the doctor, go in for a visit and they get turned away or they don't get the help or they get forced on something that really isn't what they're asking for or needing or needing. And that happens a lot to, it still happens for, for people who don't believe it. I mean, we, we study it in, in med school. Yeah. That it still happens. It's, it's it's embedded in the, it's embedded. Right. There's no other way to describe why it happens. It's just kind of embedded. I think there is an implicit bias though, with kind of, you know, like historical kind of white society that implicit bias, people of color come in and we tend to look at them as crazy, 
you know, impoverished, you know, um, poverty mindset, entitled and med seeking and an addict. And they just want what they want. And we're not going to let them have their way. <laughs> right. We know better. <laughs> so, so I think for somebody, especially people coming from communities of color, I think it's important that whatever they have access to already, let's build on the strength of that. And then my deal was, you know, in the last couple of years, especially with the legalization of medical marijuana, was if they are already accessing that and subscribing to it, and there is some key benefit or value to it, let's legitimize it and then help them get off the streets and away from synthetics and into a medical program where they can be educated on dosing and not get in trouble for it or get violated or go back to jail because they have a, a history of charges with that, with that medicine, with that substance. You're going to turn it on their head. Basically, you're going to use the anti-system to fix the system. Yeah. And now if they have choice and freedom over what they're dosing and how they're dosing, I mean, a lot of times, <laughs> so it's kind of a manipulation that I use in therapy. That if I can, if I can help them divert their attention from alcohol and other drugs that carry greater risks and are more lethal, especially when combined and interacting with each other, and I can use little therapeutic strategies to divert their attention away from that and divert their attention to medical cannabis and going through the process and getting a card and in the dispensary, now they're distracted. <laughs> by something that they actually feel like they have a little bit choice in controlling and that they get to trial and error with an experiment and they're not going to die. They might get yes. a little high. They might have a little bit of anxiety, but guess what? They can always come back in and talk to me or you about it. Yeah. And we just integrate the experience and then we help them how to continually learn how to continually improve. Shit. You might have cracked the code. <laughs> <laughs> Let me distract you. Here's some something that's really cool, right? No, but it but it but it's bringing something that's like to me is kind of a logical algorithmic approach to a certain behavioral uh like a set of behavioral issues that you got to work through. Right. Because primarily to me, I always look at time. Mm -hmm. You need time. Mm -hmm. You need this person to get more time away from the substance they're addicted to or using or the situation or the thought breakdown. You you need time because time will heal itself. Time will heal the body and the brain itself. Right. Different experiences are used to adjunct uh, as adjunct therapy and different thought processes you can teach people. Mm -hmm. But that all requires time. Yeah. And distraction. Distraction gives you that time. Yes. That's cool. And the more time you know, if you get them distracted for a month or two on this little pathway that they're trying to figure things out and trial and error and experiment with, there's your time. Not right. only do you get the time and you, um, and you distract them, but like you say, you've distracted them with something that is they have some control over or they're going to learn mm -hmm. that they have control over it. Right. And it might even be beneficial. Right. Right. Because yes. of the way cannabis works on the brain. Yeah. We definitely know it can open up like new thought pathways. Right. It can let people deal with things. Talk a little bit about that, how you've kind of, you've 
you've really in Utah pioneered this in my opinion, but utilizing cannabis in therapy. It's different for everybody because everybody, every patient is kind of in their, in a different place in their relationship with the medicine and at a different point in time in, in their life from one to the next. And so some examples are, so right now with the way that the laws are with the medical cannabis program, PTSD is the only qualifying condition. Now there's a lot of people out there that are kind of advocating for every other mental health issue to be a part of that uh, qualifying condition. But if you think about it, every other mental health condition you could probably attribute to some kind of trauma and you could probably tie that trauma to a diagnosis of PTSD. So I'm happy that PTSD is the only qualifying condition right now. We can focus on that and learn how to work with it and around it. And when we don't have to spend our time and energy on trying to, you know, lobby and advocate for every other mental health stuff. No, we just need to talk to people and come to the, come get to the bottom of their issue trauma. and their trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, what I say is, you know, in the next five or 10 years, I mean, the DSM will really take a better look at generational trauma, gender trauma, religious trauma, racial trauma, and a lot of this mental health stuff, all these mental health conditions will be probably trauma, you know, yeah. trauma-oriented or trauma, Yeah, you know, focused on the trauma. So, so in therapy, what, what we do is we treat the PTSD. So the easy explanation is, um, so the trauma, the negative life event or the life-impacting kind of experience that, contributes to the detrimental development. Detrimental development is all of that cognitive errors and thinking, cognitive flaws, the negative self-defeating thoughts that I begin to have the intrusive voices, those negative false beliefs, right? The, the, the detrimental development is something happens in my life, especially when I'm young, like zero to 15 years old. I'm a really selfish kid. I come out of the womb designed to be that way because if I'm not selfish, if the world doesn't revolve around me and I'm not the center of everyone's universe, I won't get clothed, fed, bathed, sheltered. Right. So a kid is really selfish and designed that way and appropriately so. So the earlier the traumas, whatever kind of trauma it is, the more detrimental development is going to occur. And that detrimental development, the way that that kid internalizes the trauma is the way that they see that when the <laughs> world revolves around them and they're the center of the universe is oh my gosh, I did something to cause this. It's my fault. I'm to blame. I'm bad. I'm no good. I'm unlovable. Nobody loves me. I might as well just go kill myself, right? That's trauma. Mm -hmm. So what, that, what happens is that trauma gets imprinted into, it gets mind stamped into the kind of the, the earlier parts of the developing brain, which later on become the, the mid or the hind part of the brain, the cerebellum, the amygdala. And in that little trauma stamp inside of the brain, the only way for it to become a memory and stay there is for it to embed, to be embedded in it, the shame molecule. And that shame molecule is what gets triggered as we get older and into the rest of our lives, which tells us, uh-oh, avoid this, stay away from it. It's too painful. You don't want to go through this again. Yeah, but it's stored. And, and I see, so this is a good um, like map-making 
explanation of it because it becomes the emotional part of the brain, the yes. amygdala, where yeah. you don't you you have a hard time articulating what that looks like. You can you you have to learn mm-hmm. how to articulate it from a feeling standpoint and what right. you feel like. But it is super effective. And it is the only part of the brain that's still alive in, in fight or flight situations. Yes. Right? Yes. You don't use your frontal lobe. No. And it, and it creates calloused uh, connections to the frontal lobe where right. it, knows, it knows it can get its signal across. And, you, and a lot of times those are, uh, those are they're terrible connections right? because they just put you back into the negative spiral. That's what we call the, the short-circuiting. It's yep. short-circuited. Right. Yep. Which is why we, we react so instantly and react so heavy and react so negatively to some things that had those traumas not been there, we probably wouldn't even be perceiving it in that kind of way. No, no, it's not logical. Mm-hmm. Like you, if you were able to step back and people with PTSD from like specific traumatic events, once they're able to step back and get that perspective on what happened at the time, um, that's part of the process of healing, right? right? And what's interesting about cannabis right. is it softens those short circuit connections. It softens it. It uses your endocannabinoid system and those CB receptors to kind of open things up. Think about it. You have all those endocannabinoid receptors in your central nervous system, in your immune system. Yeah. So if my central nervous system is hijacked and my brain is short circuited, and I have this trauma with the shame molecule, then the cannabis is going to come in, open things up, decompress, and soften things out, give me time to really think about things and talk about things. If I feel safe enough with the therapist that I'm with, I unwrap the trauma memory because it's holding onto that shame molecule pretty tight. Once I unwrap or unpack the trauma memory, I can release and relinquish the shame molecule. And a lot of times the shame molecule comes out in tears, a lot of emotional expression. It's very painful. That's why people avoid it and they don't want to talk about it. But it has to come out in the tears because the tears are what carry the shame molecule out of the system, out of the brain and out of the body. And the cannabis helps people to get there. And once you do the education, then they can dose and go down that road, talk about the trauma, release the shame molecule, have a really good cry and begin to feel better. There's a chemical reaction that takes place. So when I cry, and I've just done some trauma-focused work, the oxytocin levels rise in my brain. And what the oxytocin wants to do is go in and prune all of those old neurons that was storing all of that old negative psychic energy, that shame molecule. So it begins the pruning process. And it helps with neurogenesis so I can begin to establish new neural pathways inside of my brain, but the only thing that's going to help me develop new neural pathways inside of my brain is sitting here having a conversation with somebody that finally, in the first time in my life, shows me that they care enough to listen and understand and hear me and empathize with me so I can get this stuff out without judgment. And so now I'm going through memory reconsolidation. My oxytocin levels are pruning. I'm going through neurogenesis. Neuropathways are happening inside of my brain. This can cause a lot of anxiety for a person because it's new and it's fearful because it's unknown. And so after a really good session, even with the relief of a really good cry and releasing all of that shame molecule, anxiety increases, anxiety disrupts sleep patterns. And um, so the patient will probably want to dose 
manage the anxiety and to get good sleep and prepare for coming back to the next session so they can continue that process of doing trauma-focused work. When did you figure this out? The years that I've been working with people, all the research and studying that I've been doing, but there's an algorithm. So I've worked with probably, oh gosh, at least 8,000 or more people by now. And when I listen intently and I'm trying to understand and I'm really thinking deeply about what they're going through and what they've been through and I compare that from one patient to the next, there's a pattern. There's an algorithm. Yeah. Right? And yeah, we are we are animals. We, we're all <laughs> we're all human. We're all human. And we tend to repeat the behaviors repeat, the stories repeat. Yes. Different details, mm-hmm. same story. And with all the literature and all the research from a lot of different disciplines, like I'm very eclectic. And so I pull from I pull from the medical model, I pull from psychiatry, I pull from neuropsychotherapy, I pull from epigenetics, I I pull from, you know, a lot of different kind of theories of mind that exist in different disciplines. That's what I like about social work because that's, I think, the training of a social worker is we're, you know, we're trained to kind of pull from everything. Yeah. Um, lots of different things. And then we put it all together and make the connections and say, gosh, all of this body of knowledge from all of this different sets of you know, all these different disciplines, if we can bring that together and really understand how it's all connected, that's what I've been able to do to help people more. Feels like we're on the cusp of really accepting this locally, especially. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of other really programs that are like this, that are like yours, Mm -hmm. you know, use really opening up to the idea even even really just opening up to the idea that cannabis can be used as a therapeutic tool. Right. I think there is some, and we have these conversations, there's discussions about cannabis and psilocybin use in spiritual spiritual and religious experiences. Mm -hmm. But I don't, um, I've never, until I met you and and this like cannabis-affirming therapy, I didn't really know anybody who was utilizing it specifically. Right. As a as a way to help people mm-hmm. release, really. Right. 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 And I'm I'm really excited about it. Yeah. But I what I like about it is it fits a logical pattern for my medically trained brain. There's a formula. There is a formula. There's yes. an algorithm. There's right. an algorithm. There's a formula. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me. Right. There's not not a lot of hocus pocus. Right. 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 And, and so I, I feel like it can be something that the medical community can actually get behind, Mm -hmm. especially because it's guided by a, by a trained professional, right? right? We trust you in the traditional synthetic medical society. We trust the therapist. We trust because you're trained, right? You're trained in kind of our same system. Right. Yep. And, and we, I mean, it seems like doctors, need that trust. It's just so important. Right. The legitimacy. Right. Right. So I see this, this type of program really, um, I don't know. I feel like it can find the legitimacy. Right. And then you go back to your history and your story growing up and your credential now, Mm -hmm. and now you're involved in teaching people at the university of Utah. Yes. Which offers, 
a lot. And the credibility. Right. You've had the credibility to get the position at the U. You you have to have credibility. Yes. You have to have, you can't just have one piece of the puzzle. You got to have the whole thing done. Yeah. I did my colloquium and in my presentation to the, the school, the College of Social Work, <laughs> my, my last slide is, and if you accept me, <laughs> my current study, my current field of study is treating PTSD in conjunction with medical cannabis from the lens of, you know, a trauma-focused kind of approach in consideration of generational trauma, racial trauma, historical trauma, all that kind of stuff. And so that was, that was out there on the table. My first day, the other day, going in there to get some of my books for the summer semester, one of the first people <laughs> that came to me and said, congratulations, said, and I love <laughs> that you affirm medical cannabis because I am a medical cannabis patient too. And I think now the door's opening and people are talking about it and we get to do yeah. more education. We get to maybe think about finding ways to get support to invite that into curriculum and bringing that back into the community and, you know, doing what I love about this industry and this community is that it's, it's inclusive of everybody and we all get to talk about, we all yeah. get to talk about it. I like, I love this community. It's been really fun. Mm -hmm. The people on, on all sides from the, from the physicians and the PAs and NPs to the, to the therapists and the, clear to the growers and the processors, the people who use it, the patients. And it really is all about the people who utilize the plant, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when it all comes down to it, we all essentially work for the same thing. We're all connected. Yeah, we're all connected. Yeah. yeah, it's a fun, uh, I found it a really fun and rewarding uh, place to work. Yeah. Seems like there's only good people, right. almost. Right. I'm sure we'll find a couple of bad eggs <laughs> here and there. <laughs> here and there. Some are malleable. Some, some, right? Some are changeable. They just need. <laughs> they just need a little session. They just yeah. need to have a good cry. A little bit of love. I've heard you. <laughs> I've heard you say that to a few. You know, to a few. It's just, just need a good cry. Yeah. You know, release that. Release that shame molecule. Yeah. What have, What have we missed for the for the first two? kind of episodes that we're working on together? Well, so you and I, so first of all, I can't let this opportunity go by without thanking you and appreciating you, Mr. Tim Pickett. <laughs> I still on my phone, I, I'm, I keep your first voicemail that you ever sent. Really? I just want to see if it will pull up. I don't know if it will here in the studio. But it was uh, 418, oh my gosh, of 2020. 418, yeah. so almost two years ago, day before my birthday. We're about to come up on that, on recording. Okay, just giving you a call. Um, I'd love to entertain how we could work together um, because PTSD is one of the very interesting qualifications for medical cannabis. And I think anxiety is a reasonable um, option as well. For patients who want to navigate the compassionate use board, but I would need a little bit of help from somebody like yourself. And I think there's ways we could work together. So go ahead and give me a call back anytime. Um, I I think Monday might be best. Um, 
I've got. I'm. <laughs> I get. I get. I get along. I got a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I keep that in my voicemail because I think that was the the pivotal moment, you know, of being able to get to where we are right now. Yeah. Wow. That's a while so, ago. It feels yeah. like a lifetime ago. Yeah. I mean, April eighteenth, the first dispensary had opened. Uh, Dragonfly was opening. Mm-hmm. The phone was ringing off the hook. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> you know, we were just trying to see as many people as we could right. and navigate the system. And mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about PTSD. Yeah. I'm glad we connected. No question. Yeah. It's been fun because you're, you know, the programs that you worked on and everything that I've learned about you um, has always uh, you're just very, you have a very impressive uh, resume. Your your history is just phenomenal, right? It, it can't be, you cannot overstate the value of what you've been through, mm-hmm. what you've learned. So for me, having, you know, working with somebody like you is just, it is, it's just a way to help a lot of yeah, people. Right. Which... Like we said in the very beginning, you help people and it makes, you know, that's what makes business do well. Yeah. And then your business does well. You can help more people. Right. Much appreciation to you. I think the, one of the things that we ought to talk about is get more into the shame molecule and kind of the neuroscience and that formula. I'd love to really share that formula and really help patients understand what they're going to get when they sign up for trauma-focused therapy, when we're using medical cannabis in conjunction with that, and what the outcome is that we can achieve together. And usually it's life-changing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure I've got some, hopefully, some things I can add to that. We can really get into that. Mm-hmm. So let's do it another couple of sessions and talk all about the science and the approach and what it's like for people, what that experience is like for people. I'm excited. Yeah. So uh, to, to uh, wrap this piece up, I'm Tim Pickett, host of Utah in the Weeds, Clifton Uckerman, medical director of the, the Behavioral Health Program at Utah Therapeutic Health Center. If you have any questions, 801-851-5554 is our phone number, utahmarijuana.org. Uh, you can find us both there. You can find access to behavioral health therapy therapists that are really cannabis affirming would that is that the that's yep. a good term for that yep. and can can help also that program from a therapy standpoint uh cliff almost all insurances you're paneled on for yep. the behavioral health therapy yes. sessions yes. so this is a great way for people to get access into the medical cannabis program and get get help and for for a copay, right? Yep. Get the help they need. Yep. We can talk all about that too. Yes. That's like an entire episode of yes. like how we're working within and outside the system to in a really legal way and yes. to help people navigate this whole thing. I think that's a whole nother conversation that I'm excited to have later. Yes. But anyway, utahmarijuana.org, Utah in the weeds, subscribe and uh, stay safe out there. Thanks everybody. Thanks.